and welcome to the Neurodivergence and Mental Health Podcast. My name is Sally Nilsson and I'm a psychotherapist, published author, public speaker and mum. I discovered my autism and ADHD aged 56 in March 2021 and having rewritten my life story, I'm on a quest to advocate for neurodivergent community. I hope you enjoy listening to my incredible guests sharing their experiences of autism, ADHD, dyslexia, dyspraxia, dyscalculia, Tourette's and OCD. We talk about growing up, education, work and personal stories and how mental health has played its part in shaping lives. Our conversations cover spectrums, traits, challenges, acceptance and successes. So sit back, relax and find out what it means to feel, think and be different in a neurotypical world. So, um, hello, I'm very, very happy to um, have Amy Richards on the podcast today. Hello, Amy. Hello. How lovely to be here. Thank you very much. And uh, I'd love to just be be able to um, sort of tell people how I know Amy. And uh, back in January, when I'd, I'd read Divergent Mind, fantastic book, can't tell you who it's by, and I discovered that there was definitely something going on, and, and I was neurodivergent in one way or another, I was trying to get as much information as I possibly could about what it was all about. So I went on Spotify and looked at podcasts, and, um, and you came up, and, and I just listened to everyone. And I've listened, I just found out before this, I've listened to 43 podcast how incredible is that please just tell me a little bit um please introduce yourself very quickly and tell me a little bit about square peg and and how come you've amazingly managed to do 43 podcasts (laughs) so far yeah so okay so yeah i'm amy richards and i am self-employed and i live in cardiff in the uk i'm 43 or nearly 43 43 in august which is very soon I'm not sure when this is coming out, so I may already be 43. (laughs) And I was diagnosed autistic um, about five five years ago in 2016. So, yeah, so I started the podcast last October. And I can't believe it's 43 episodes either. That's absolutely (laughs) crazy, isn't it? When I started it, I just didn't have any kind of preconceived idea about what it would be like. I didn't think it would even be successful at all or do anything at all and somehow I ended up recording three whole seasons already oh and it's it's just it's so easy to listen to you 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 know you sound lovely apart from anything else you're just very easy to listen to and your guests um, come from all over the world now and Mm. and their stories you know every single podcast has got something you can take away and and be very very useful and some are really poignant poignant to the point of tears which isn't difficult for me um and i just hope you keep doing them so thank you very thank you very much for that and uh yeah i mean it's amazing and um so it was uh you said five years ago that you discovered um you are autistic it was actually a lot longer ago than that so five years ago i was actually had my diagnosis letter in my hand that was june 2016 um but i actually probably i can't tell you exactly what year but it would have been something like 2004 so quite quite a way before and and what happened there 
So um, I was a teacher for about 12 years. Uh, so I started teaching, I did my, my teacher training in 2002, 2003. So 2003, I started teaching full time. And the school that I started off at um, had the autistic or well, Asperger's as it was the Asperger's unit for the county in our school. So we had a lot of these, these kids. So the in mainstream school, but they had a unit and they were obviously withdrawn from lessons for certain part of their timetables. Yeah. Um, and so because they were in our lessons, all of the teachers had to, all the staff had to have training. So one day I went along for my inset day training and it was on Asperger's and I'm sitting there listening to this and they put this big list of traits up on the whiteboard and I'm reading through this list of traits and I just sort of read through them all and just thought, hang on, this all sounds really, really familiar. And I knew nothing about the, and the only thing I knew about autism before that was watching the film Rain Man. Yeah. Um, How many people say that? Yes. So that was my sum total of my knowledge up until that point that that's what autism was. Uh, and, what, and what was it like? Because, um, you know, just to um, sort of add and sort of share as well, um, it was so hard. I had two psychologists and reams of um, questionnaires and they didn't pick up the autism and they said very, very high markers for um, ADHD. And I came away and I'd done so much um, research on autism. I thought, are you sure? And then it was you actually that recommended, I think, Sarah Hendricks. And uh, I watched her video um, on YouTube and... And I managed to book the assessment and, and I, I really, really like her. <laughs> I identify with so many things with her. And so she did the assessment for me and did pick up autism. But she, she said that if I was to take meds for ADHD, my ADHD would come down and my autism would come up. But I know now after a long time, I know that I'm autistic. I keep seeing autism in me. And I had a, my first official recognized meltdown the other day um, as an autistic person. <laughs> so, so how was your, um, uh, the questions might sort of go back, back to front a little mm. bit because we're on this. Um, how was it for you about the run up to assessment and diagnosis, especially about your, your mental health? Because I had imposter syndrome and am I a fake and what happens if I'm not I mean they're such big emotions I mean I think since that kind of first realization I say way back in whenever it was 2004 I kind of honestly hid from it for a long time because I didn't see myself in it even though I recognized myself in the traits because things were different then we didn't have the knowledge we have now it wasn't as mainstream and it just terrified me. So I just buried it for years. And then eventually I'd keep coming out and, and, and having a little bit of research and then kind of burying my head again for a bit. And I'd taken online tests. So I kind of knew from that, that there was a strong likelihood that this was me and that I would end up being diagnosed at some point. And then eventually what led to me actually deciding to go for the assessment in the end was just a major period of burnout this would have been sort of 2014 and I'd been teaching at the say for about 12 years and it just got to a point where, I mean, I thought I didn't know what was wrong with me. Yeah. And I went to the doctor and the doctor diagnosed, diagnosed me with depression and anxiety and I might've been depressed. It's really hard for me to work that one out because looking back now, all I see is the burnout. Yes. So if I was depressed, then that's what had caused it. 
but I think it was more likely that I wasn't actually depressed. I, because I remember thinking at the time I was offered antidepressants and I refused them and I've got nothing against people taking medication that's going to help them that, you know, they really help people. But I just had this deep down thing in, in me just saying, no, you don't need that really strong, like inner voice, just saying, no, you don't need that. What I needed was to get to the bottom of what the actual problem was. Absolutely. And, uh, and I, I understand that completely. Um, I'm a psychotherapist and, you know, before all of this, before March and getting my own diagnosis, um, and COVID um, very much so, I was seeing people coming to um, therapy with unusual symptoms that I hadn't seen before since I started in 2016. They were coming with shutdown, meltdown, dissociation, zoning out, and all these, sort of, I'd never seen it before. And that sent me on um, quite an interesting journey, actually, into polyvagal theory and Stephen Forges and what was happening here. And I was completely, I still am very, very fascinated about that. But, um, and then I, I, I did some courses about chronic stress because in a neurotypical, um, you know, with everyone else, 80% of the rest of um, society, stress is still really, really difficult and very, very hard and people get burnt out. Um, because of chronic stress but a while ago in April my mum was in hospital my son had decided he, he couldn't do university anymore and I totally understood other things were happening so it was a build-up of different things and I went into what I now know is autistic burnout and I was sat on the sofa knitting eating ice cream and watching horror films waiting by the phone for news about my mum and that's the only thing that I could I could do, and funnily enough, I could see clients because I'm, I'm a bit like a, a Saga Noren from The Bridge. I, I'm like her, and, and my work was the, the thing that kept me sane, absolutely, mm -hmm. because it, I, I don't get caught up in, in clients' emotions because I'm like a detective. But that burnout, how do you think burnout is different in uh, neurodivergent people than it is for non-neurodivergent people can do you think there's a difference that's a really interesting question um obviously it's really hard for me because i don't okay i only have the one set of experiences but i wonder whether the causes are slightly different because i think a lot of it is to do with that level certainly for me as a teacher that level of masking over that length of time and not having you know, during the school day, not having any time to yourself and constantly being on all the time. Mm. I think that's a, a high pressure environment for anybody. But if you're someone like me that needs to be alone for quite a large proportion of the time yeah. to be able to function well, mm. and that combined with, I say, constant masking, because teaching is kind of like acting in a way anyway, but if you combine that with being autistic, I think it's almost like a double whammy, mm. an extra layer on top. It is. Um, and so you, I, I, as what you just said about, you know, how you were when you were going through yours is that exactly the same. I was sitting on the sofa. I, I think I just watched Judge Judy back to back with, with my cat for about, Judge Judy, for about three or four months. Yeah. Which is something I would never normally do. You know, that's not, that's not me. And I was completely incapable of moving off that sofa. But interesting what you just said about being able to do your client work. Obviously I wasn't working. I was off on the sick, but even during that, point I think I probably spent maybe two weeks at that level and then gradually even throughout that even though I was still in it I was able to do certain things so I, I remember I was doing a bit of a a course um online 
Yeah. The little tiny things I could do. So it was almost like a little spark of something underneath it all. But mostly it was just this state of, yeah, not being able to do anything. It just completely, you know, completely mm. stuck. And um, I, I, I have been talking to quite a few people about this and, and we all say exactly the same thing and we have a bit of a laugh about it in a way. Um, I used to live next to Gatwick Airport and there were lots of planes and I was a nerdy plane spotter but it got annoying after a while because I couldn't grow <laughs> my vegetables in the garden. They were literally going past the window and uh, we moved somewhere else and then the plane stopped and, and when the plane stopped and everything went quiet and the house went quiet and I went quiet, um, I got a tent, I put it in the garden, it became like a yurt like the arches. And, and I was writing poetry and I was coloring in and doing all these things. And tw the summer of 2020, I will always remember as one of my favorite summers ever. And with, you know, that, that other side of it that felt so terrible and really emotional and upset for everyone that was suffering. But I have met other people who have said, I felt safe and quiet and it was amazing. What, what do you think about? that time last year yeah I've had this conversation with a couple of people lately actually it's really interesting because obviously you know it was a horrendous time and I think actually my mental health did take a bit of a battering if I if I'm honest last year and I don't think I realized that at the time I think it was more afterwards that that kind of fallout became apparent what I will say is it was two sides of it for me firstly so many people were obviously you know missing the fact they couldn't see people yeah the, one of the worst aspects for me was that my wife who i love dearly couldn't work literally couldn't go into work because they closed the building for the duration of the big lockdown yeah so she, consequently i went from spending all my days here on my own until she comes home from work to suddenly being 24 7 in the same house with another, another person and for me it doesn't matter who that person is i cannot i just can't and i found that incredibly stressful i bet you did because yeah that change it's changed well, it, was, it was change but also just from the point of view of just not being on my own at any point even though you know she might be in a different room yeah. I'm still working, but that that never having any it felt any space or time to myself and I desperately need that to function so, so ha what happened with your with your emotional well-being can, can you can you remember some um, particular things you know were you were you getting irritable were you getting upset or anxious or stressed how was it affecting you um just knowing that she was there as well um i ooh, i think it was just more of a just this sense of being very constrained and as if the house just wasn't big enough to hold yeah. us mm. you know and we got on so well yes that's not what it's about it's yeah. about literally this physical and emotional need that i have just to have some what i call decompression time yeah, definitely. And when you don't have that, I find that very, very difficult. I, mean, I, I you know, I, I'd go out once a week to do the shop on my own, but of course, that's not really on your own because there are people there too. Yeah. Can <laughs> so you go walking in nature and sort of go where around where you live? Can you just get, go off for a walk for an hour? Uh, yes, a little bit. So yeah, I did you know to go for a run and and things occasionally but well, for um, a run now that's very yes. impressive <laughs> <laughs> but um but yeah so that was difficult and it was i think difficult as well because that feels isolating because it's an experience that's not shared by well certainly not by many neurotypical people yeah so i remember telling some um somebody else about this sort of going back last year and they couldn't understand they were really c confused by this mm. but of course now having spoken to so many more autistic people who kind of many of whom not all of whom but many of whom understand that completely 
I think that is part of the battle sometimes, isn't it? It's just not having that sense of shared experience. So that it actually compounds it somehow if you feel isolated yeah. because your experience doesn't seem to be mirroring that of other people around you. Completely right. It's, it, it is lonely, but there's comfort in the loneliness in some ways. I mean, I've, I've got a bit of a double whammy because I'm autistic and ADHD. And there's a really funny thing, a really sort of funny trait with ADHD. I'm finding out on TikTok, which is amazing for ADHD, as I have to say. And it's this thing called body doubling. And, um, and I, sometimes I need somebody in the house, but nowhere near me. They just need to be in the house just for me to be able to get tasks done but it's not tasks to do with my business it's just to do things like the washing up and the dishes if I've got somebody else there I'm quite good at doing that but then my autism side is saying please go away just just leave me on my own I like being on my own you know so you kind of have a, a bit of a double whammy can we um whiz back to um a few years ago not many I'm sure um mm. how was it for you you know in primary middle and secondary school and then going into university um because you didn't know but but what was it like for you what sort of little girl were you oh i was the people pleasing very very quiet to the point of not speaking child that that was me all pretty much all the way through school really i my memory actually goes back really far and i can remember sort of you know back to my first day in nursery school and just sitting alone on a chair because I just had no interest in the other children. And for the whole of that first year, they were just on the periphery of my, of my vision. They were just as if they weren't really a part of my world. And that did change as I got older and I formed friendships and things, but I always, felt, I always kind of felt that outsider-ness somehow. That's an amazing um, memory to have um that you that you remember that and and i'm going back to my little school and i loved my school um from you know seven to um 11. it was wonderful best best years ever uh, i was going from into the lions in, enclosure off uh, going into secondary school but um for me i think i was a goody two-shoes although i was precocious um but at age 14, I became a rebel and uh, I changed completely. And it was dark eyeshadow, pink lipstick, <laughs> you know, uh, pen, uh, satin pencil skirts, high shoes and a terrible attitude. And um, so, so how was it for you? Did you just try and keep um, under the radar? How did you manage to go through um, secondary school? Because a lot of people get badly bullied at um, secondary school. Oh, I was, I was bullied from probably quite early on at school I would imagine probably you know infant school to an extent nothing horrendous I suppose but I mean I think there was a real sense of that I was different that I was very aware of but obviously other people were very aware of too and I I probably didn't do myself many favors in that it was probably quite obvious that I wasn't that interested in other people as a kid and I was quite self-sufficient and quite happy reading my book in a corner and I didn't really, you know, if people left me alone, I would have been quite happy. But of course, other kids didn't like that. So would not leave me alone. Did you have any friends, um, you know, like... Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think probably I was quite a, a serial friendship person. So I'd always have like one friend. Yes. Yes. Like one friend at a time. Yeah. <laughs> but all, yeah, I always had friends through school usually you say very close friends like one or one or maybe two at a time and then a slightly slightly bigger group then when I 
was in in high school. How did you negotiate college? Because, I mean, I've got big gaps in memory, which is not very fantastic when you're just writing your autobiography, but, but well, I'll get around it somehow. But, um, in, you know, how did you manage in college? Did, did it get any easier in college? Or So, th- yeah, this, this is where my real problems started, I suppose. Because I think I, I managed to get through school. So I always, I say, I always had some friends, and I liked, I liked the academic side of school, and I liked the teachers. So I kind of managed to get by. And then when I went to university, I was so young actually. Because I literally, my, my birthday's in August, so I was, I just Gosh. turned eighteen. So yeah, when I went in, in, in sort of the beginning of October, and I wasn't ready at all. And I was somehow, I, I managed to convince myself somehow that it was a good idea to go as far away as possible. I think I was trying to put that side of the, the person I was at school behind me thinking I could just become this new person if I went away to university. Yeah. But of course that's, it doesn't work like that. You take yourself with you when you go. Mm. Um, and I did make friends at university, but I couldn't cope with so many things. And looking back now with the knowledge I now have, I can see yeah, poor executive functioning. I wasn't able to organize my time properly. Having been at, in um, A-levels at school, Yes, teachers. I'd never been in sixth from college, so I had no idea about managing managing my workload or my schedule or anything. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was really challenging, and the social side of it was just really, really difficult for me. Suddenly being, I so I made friends, but suddenly being in this environment where there were no boundaries, there was no home to go back to. I was in a halls of residence, so it was almost like your social life is is in your house. And everybody's going in all the different rooms. I mean, I didn't go to university, but I went out with a, a chap who uh, went to university. So I was, I was amongst it. And I mean, I'm just looking at, you know, I remember just looking at all these people doing it, doing life, doing university, yeah. doing socialising, in and out of each other's rooms and everything else. And I was just aghast. I mean, I just, you know, how can you do that? I, it just was too busy and too big. And mm-hmm. I didn't get it at all. I mean, I definitely felt an alien in that environment. Yeah, yeah. Did, what did happened? Um, what happened at university? Yeah. Did you manage or? So what happened was that I ended up taking refuge in drinking too much, which was my go-to yeah. for uh, from, from the age of about fifteen, probably in yeah. my late twenties. And I either either I got very very depressed or I got very very burned out or it was a mixture. I'm not sure really because I never yeah. got I never I never saw anybody for this. Mm. Um, and I just ended up not going to lectures because like, I couldn't get out of bed. I literally could not get out of bed. I was just like in this kind of slightly comatose state all the time. And of course, in the end, I got thrown out because if you don't go to lectures for several months or hand any, any papers in, <laughs> they tend to get rid of you. Was that relief or did that affect your mental health? Because, uh, you know, uh, well, with ADHD anyway, there's definitely this rejection, sensitivity, dysphoria. There's this... Uh, you know, this failure, I'm just completely useless. Or, you know, how, how have I managed to muck that up as well and all that sort of stuff? I mean, how did you feel? I was absolutely devastated because mm-hmm. up until that point, I'd been a success. I was used to being a success. You know, I got my GCSEs, I got my A-levels. They were pretty good. You know, yeah, things just seemed to go right. And this was the first big failure that I'd had, really. But I, what interestingly, what happened was, I think it, it sort of somehow tipped me out of that mental state that I was in and galvanized me because I I was basically I was so afraid to tell my parents about what had happened that I decided I needed a plan before I told them so I managed to get a place at my local university 
in the next few weeks after I went home. Well done. Yeah. And I was able to present it as a fait accompli, like, you know, oh, I, I know. Moved, I, I love I, a bit I, of that. Actually. I'm moving universities. You know, this, this is a good thing. I'm coming home. <laughs> yeah. That, that's a very, I like that a lot. <laughs> um, so that was good. So you went to the second university and, and, and was that better being nearer home knowing that you could sort of. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I almost got kicked out a second time. Oh gosh! Yes. So it's looking back, it was a real struggle, and I'm so proud of myself for sticking at it and actually managing to pull myself out twice. Yes. The sec- my my second first year, so I had to obviously had to repeat the year because I completely yeah. failed it. Yeah. Um, in the new university, so I was living at home at this point because I had no money. Yeah. Um, <laughs> having obviously had one failed year, so I'm living at home. I've got no money. So I'm working two jobs just to like buy books and be able to have some sort of social life. So consequently the burnout happens again for different, different reasons this time, because I'm doing too much. I'm spreading myself way too thin. Um, but I managed this time I learned my lesson and I went and saw the Dean before it all went to hell and basically yeah. was able to say, this is the situation. I'm really behind in all these subjects and these essays what can I do and they were like okay well if you write five essays in five days and pass them all you can stay and you did and I did and well, because, and well done. because the hyper focus thing it's like yes. you tell me to write five essays in one essay a day for five days that I've not researched but just yeah. to, just to do it I will do it <laughs> not if you've got a pathological demand avoidance you might have you might struggle well, I, I do actually have an element of that I think in my personality but I think this was so much of a case I wanted to do it there and was you no had body. to because you'd already and I had to once and you yes. really didn't want that to nobody again. was going to let me back in again after, right. after this so I had to do it and I wanted to because I was so de- determined and I think that somehow I just turned things around and then I, I moved into a digs and I got a better job so I didn't have to do two jobs yeah. and it just things just kind of improved massively then um, I think we but, have to be resilient we have to yes. say look this isn't what I mean it is down to us it is down to us or we stay at home and and you managed to get through that and you went into mm. teaching and then that that didn't go so well at the end but you you know what other jobs you, you had teaching and you just tell me a little bit about how you left teaching and then what did you do after that yeah so I yes yeah, so I was teaching for 12 years and in some respects, it was probably quite a good job for me to have because I always knew that I wouldn't be well suited. I just knew instinctively I wouldn't be well suited in a big company or a big open plan office. Yeah. That that wasn't, wasn't going to work. And in teaching, of course, you've got your classroom. So you've got some control. You're the boss yeah. in the classroom. You've got autonomy over what happens in it. You've got autonomy over the lighting and the, you know, different, how, it, how it looks, the walls, displays. So that was always quite comforting in a way. And the curriculum is familiar and humans are humans. And unless they're actually setting fire to stuff, (laughs) you you generally have some idea of what they're going to do, don't you? Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, it was really tough in some respects because, for example, I've got um, prosopagnosia, you know, the face blindness. Oh, right. Yeah. So trying to learn the kids' names, that was actually one of my worst and most (laughs) difficult things of teaching was just trying to learn how everybody was. So that's face blindness and name blindness. It's both, it's both of it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically, I'd, I'd be there with, with a seating plan, very carefully worked out, write all the kids' names on it. And of course, somebody would move <laughs> yeah. without permission. And I wouldn't yeah. have the faintest clue that they'd moved because they all look the same to me. They weeks. don't exist anymore. They, they've become non-existent. Yeah, oh. just a blur of faces. 
It is uh, such a thing. It's such a thing. I find it so embarrassing because I was living in a quite small town and people, and I know people from different places. I was a manager at Fat Face. I went to various schools. My, I knew them from the kids going to different schools and they go, hi, Sally, how are you? The hell is that talking to me? And, you know, they just kept happening. But, um, but, but I, so you love teaching, but it, you know, it, I, I, I sort of had a love-hate relationship with it, I suppose, in that I think I quite, I, I loved the classroom, actually. I did love communicating and teaching, and I still do. I get the opportunity to do training with people. I really enjoy yeah. delivering training. Mm. What I found really challenging, I found the behaviour aspect challenging, I think because I'm not very good at working out people's motives. So I'm yeah. not very good at working out whether or not people are lying to me. Yeah. So trying to work out whether a kid is genuine or whether they're you know trying to pull off arse and I found that really challenging yeah because I'm not very good at the non-verbal communication that you need no. to be able to work those things out and in the olden days um people used to say I was just really gullible and they would deliberately tell me jokes knowing that I wouldn't understand it's the that sort of thing isn't it get the just to get the rise and and it is context and intention and things like that. And, and then you get taken um, advantage of and, yes. and teased and all the rest of it. And, and children, yeah. I mean, you are, uh, you know, getting thrown to the wolves a little bit. I'm yes. just, um, if it's I'm just, uh, what do you do now? Because you're not a teacher now. What's your job now? So, okay. So, yeah. So after the burnout in 2014, when um, I was off work for a few months and then I basically was supposed to be returning to school. Um, for my sort of phased return and I didn't go I, I went and just drove past so that that was that was that day well, um, that's a, I, I just had a picture <laughs> I see in pictures I can see you that it, you're you're in a you're in a play you're in a drama and there's Amy in her car driving <laughs> towards looking at the school and then just driving off I'm with you yeah so that was it I just I slowed down thought I'm like no I'm not gonna go in just kept on going ended up in a car park somewhere phoned the wife and said yeah I think I'm not going to go back to work and she just said that's a really good idea Aww. um yes so yes I I that was it I quit I handed my resignation in the next day and then I had I think about four months worth of money in the bank so I just decided to do a few little projects work out what it was I wanted to do I've ended up basically I, I started off as a virtual assistant Yes. Doing people's admin. Mm -hmm. um, and then I kind of morphed into doing more kind of online business stuff with people. So on like um, email marketing, websites, um, sales pages, that kind of thing. And basically working with a lot of coaches now. So I work with a lot of business and life coaches on the kind of techie back end of their business. And also doing some copy, copy editing and stuff as well, which I absolutely love. And that's, so that is, um, uh... I mean, it's varied, it's interesting. Does it pay the bills? That's the thing. Yes. Yeah, very much so. Yes. So, and, um, and that is brilliant, isn't it? Because, I mean, for me, finance, uh, it's a difficult thing. It's a slightly sort of trauma-y from when I was younger thing as well, I suppose, if, about money. You know, I need to know that I've got money in the bank. I don't like it if I, if I think that, you know, I'm not going to get money. And that's, that's quite important. So what, so you're in, a, you're in a good place now. Um, but in, in your life, when do you think was uh, your biggest mental health challenge? Um, you know, what did it feel like, you know, when you felt the most in a bubble, the most like an alien, like you were losing it? I think probably 
the biggest would have been yeah it's really hard to say I mean, there's been three really there was the, the that time at university the first, my first first year at uni was the time when I first really imploded mm. um and obviously the big burnout in 2014 was another really difficult time but I'd had a previous one in about I think it was 2007 where I'd ended up quitting I'd quit, I quit teaching twice <laughs> that was the, that was the first time so I got that cycle that so many people have described to me this year that cycle of burnout of you can do it for a few years or a few months or however long a period yes. of time you, yeah, you do it yeah. and then it all comes crashing down and you have to quit or change what you're doing and then you end up then starting again you feel fine it's all great the energy's back and then the cycle happens again but it can also if there's ADHD in the mix it can be boredom and and boredom is kryptonite for ADHD and and that's probably why I had 20 jobs Mm. because but the stress that's with it the stress of being boredom boredom hurts that that sent me to the bottle I now know that's what it was. It wasn't trauma and all these terrible things. I drank alcohol because I was bored and I, and I needed to drink to oblivion to just get rid of the day of mm. boredom and, and things like that. I think that's partly why we, just, we said just now about, you know, the variety of what I do now is why I've managed to do it for six years because I love it, but also it's really varied. I could be making a website for somebody one day and the next time doing email, email marketing or doing some copy editing, designing something. There's constantly different, different things coming up, different problems to solve. And that's that's think, brilliant. And uh, yeah. Ned Halliwell, who wrote ADHD 2.0, um, he, he said, you know, a lot of people with um, ADHD anyway, which I have, is you have ideas that come out like popcorn. And, and I did an assessment, um, a working assessment, a bit like a psychometric test. And it said that exact thing. I'm very ideas and very innovative. And what happens with me is I have all these ideas, but I don't want to go with them. I don't, I'm not an industrial person. So I, I want to go in, say, show me the problem, show me what you want to do. And I'll come up with all these ideas and solutions. And I say that there you are, have that I'm off. And I do that. And do you think, you know, it sounds like you are very good at solving problems and finding solutions. Yes. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, that, that's, that is what I do really for people. And for yourself. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I've always been quite a resourceful, I seem as if I was quite a resourceful person, I suppose. Um, and it's really interesting you saying about the ADHD because I'm pretty convinced this year I've become convinced that I fall under that Yay, as well. You're joining our team. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I haven't even been assessed or anything, but I, I do wonder quite strongly whether that might in fact be a crossover that I've got as well it's quite fun uh, there's a fantastic chap called Paul Mikalef on YouTube and he did uh, autism versus ADHD and it was so fantastic to see where my autism was and my ADHD was and I made a Venn diagram with a bit in the middle that was mm. my bit and it was just so it was so interesting and I and I really liked it so um you know a lot of people who have stress all the time because of autism and Paul Mikalef mentioned this as well is about complex trauma and autism. Because when we're autistic, we're going through trauma every single day of our life because it can be um, a sensory thing like touch or feel. It can be that we can't name our emotion. Mm. And an emotion that we have today, it might not come out as something until three or four days later. Oh yeah. (laughs) And and there's all these incredible new, wonderful things that we learn 
about ourselves and and I, I mean I've got lots of things that I do I think I'm actually mentally pretty amazing which is good because I'm a psychotherapist but um, I know that you've interviewed some um, counsellors and psychotherapists but but what do you do how do you keep your body healthy and your mind healthy mentally yeah it's a really good question so I've got quite a, quite a routine and I've got like a lot of us I've got a very well quite a love-hate relationship with routine is that I need to have <laughs> yeah. one but then after a while it really gets gets to me <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know whether you identify with that yeah. um so yeah so I mean I, I take exercise every day and I know that's a bit of a cliche but it's so true that being moving your body and being out in nature really does help yes um so I, I i'm very lucky that where we live we right by a park and a river so we walk along there every day um for about an hour or so which is lovely um mm. and we try and get out into the hills as much as possible i, I love hill walking hiking oh it's fantastic i mean hill walking it's um i broke both my ankles last august and i don't know how i did it i just walked out my back door and then i was on the floor with my legs in the air and one of my ankles was at a very bad oh my way. goodness and I just started jogging before it happened. And so I'm, I don't feel like I want to do anything jumpy on my feet anymore. But hill walking is absolutely, and it's so beautiful, isn't it? Because you have yes. this fantastic dopamine reward of the wonderful, yes. wonderful view at the top and then the walk down. Yes. <laughs> and just that sense of, you know, we went on one a couple of weeks ago and just that sense of being on our own, you know, miles from anybody, it feels on the top of a hill somewhere just just the wind and a few ponies Heathcliff Heathcliff oh yes absolutely <laughs> it's wonderful um and, and I guess and the other thing is you know obviously the physical stuff like that is really important but also I've quite a couple of years now probably three or four years I've been practicing um EFT emotional food yes. technique the tapping yes um and that is I think that's very good for autism and I find that incredibly calming um, and it's just because people say you know, be focused on the positives and that's great but you need to acknowledge the negatives as well you need to just, feel your feelings you yes exactly it. and it helps me to because because as you said earlier on about us not being able to recognize our emotions very well yeah uh, alexithymia thing yes um i find that actually having just every every morning starting the day by speaking that out loud mm. but in a kind of calming controlled nurturing way yes and then doing some affirmations so you then bring in the positives in yeah it just kind of clears everything out yeah I, wonderful i mean it's so good i think i think the i one is good as well emdr um i think that can help as well sometimes it's quite nice to to zone out unhook go offline you know i mean that was my ice cream with you know um when i when i get burnt out is sitting on the sofa eating ice cream watching horror and knitting and I and I love horror because it calms me down because I'm waiting for the jump scare <laughs> that's just how I am and, uh, and it is, I know and we're all a, a little bit different but being out in nature I'm on mindfulness I was talking to Paul Isaacs about it and he loves creative writing and I write a lot I have a bullet journal and I write creatively as well and um and I did go on a mindfulness course, but as soon as they had me laying down and being really, really quiet and doing this body scan and, and feeling, um, going into this calm thing, I hated it. I felt really angry and quite emotional. I didn't like it. So okay. um, active mindfulness is what I do. And I, we, I went to the um, 
big festival and uh, I did this really active uh, meditation where you're jumping up and down and groaning and doing all this stuff and I loved it but I, I go out and I go cloud watching and I look mm -hmm. at nature and and I just I'm, I'm such a nature person and a climate person anyway and um, and I want to get down to the seaside and swim in the sea. You know, I, it's, yeah. it, it's kind of all about, um, it's all about that really. I love it. So um, it was very interesting what you said about masking. Um, do you still, do you still mask when you think, yeah, I think I'm going to stick my mask on today and just be this person or are you maskless nowadays? I'm not sure what it's like to be maskless really. I mean, I think, but I think the only place that honestly, realistically happens entirely is when I'm on my own or with my wife. Um, I, I'm not entirely sure how to not mask outside the house because I think it goes deeper. It's not, it's not it's, because people think about masking, I think, is something you put on purposefully in order to do a certain thing. And sometimes that's true. But often I think it's a much more underlying thing than that. And when you've done it from since you were a tiny child, it becomes part of your personality when you're out in the world. Mm. And I don't quite understand how to break that down and still be a person who goes about in the world and doesn't cause a lot of trouble. <laughs> it's really interesting you say that. My husband, who's got no idea at all about anything, but gave me some really good advice. And, and, um, and I was having, it was difficult. I was having difficulties because my parents were moving house and they didn't want to go. And I had, I love my dad. He's not no longer with us, but I, I, I love my dad very much, but it was a difficult relationship with my dad. And with rejection sensitivity dysphoria, you can throw loads and loads of stuff at me and, and I'm okay. But if it's to do with very close people to, especially like my dad and he would say something, it would be really difficult. So mm. my, hus my husband said to me, look, when you go and see your mum and dad, just just go in there like you're a carer and oh yes I know and everything and agree with everything you, they say and just do that and come out and then when you're in the car you can ex have every expletive shout your head off do exactly what you do and then get on with your life and I thought for goodness sake I'm a psychotherapist I'm supposed to be giving this sort of information and it just made sense made a lot of sense and I think sometimes you can just say right this is this person who's likely to wind me up but I'm not going to let them do that so I'll put my metaphorical suit of armor and mine is this wonderful sort of light purple shimmering thing so that the arrows are what they're going to say to me and they can ping them as much to me as they like and then I'll, I'll deal with it later I'll just deal with it later and I'll just get through it um, but the masking when you drop the mask because I've only just dropped my mask it's quite it's quite exhausting um i mean i'd like to ask you something it's not it's not in the this bit but it's about this sort of thing it's about friends when uh when you come out um and, and when i came out I, I did it straight away i i went through this really big imposter syndrome and fake thing before i was diagnosed autistic but because I wanted to know for sure whether I was or not, and then I would deal with it. But when I found, it, I found out I was autistic, I straight away wanted to tell Facebook and I wanted to put it on my counselling directory and offer and, and change, become niche and become a neurodivergent psychotherapist helping neurodivergent people. And that's what I wanted to do. But I, I suppose I was a bit surprised in a way with my friends because... When I posted it, it, it came back as um, a little bit of, oh, you know, we love you just the way you are. And, uh, you know, you're just mad Sally. And when well, we love you just the way you are. 
and I was just thinking, oh, for goodness sake, if you only knew what I've gone through in my life, the depression, the anxiety, because of having to mask and having to be somebody different. And I think it will change who my friends are um, along the way. I mean, that sort of comment, it just feels so dismissive and invalidating, doesn't it, I think? Because it just, it, I think it's not necessarily people's fault. It's because they don't understand or, or know about autism. And they see it as a, neg- perhaps see it as a negative thing. And so they, so they think they're being nice and kind by saying, oh, but you're still the same person. Oh, but, you know, you're absolutely fine. You're broken, but... Whereas what you're feeling, what we're feeling is, well, no, this is completely realigned everything about myself in terms of how I feel about myself. Yeah. And all my experiences is a massive big deal. So to have someone say that sort of comment, it just feels, yeah, totally dismissive and as if they're not, not hearing. So somebody said, um, somebody said to me last week, actually, because I, I, I told them for the first time and I said, oh, I, in March I got, it might be my tone of voice or something. I don't know what it was, but it was on the phone. And I said, um, oh, in March I, I got um, a diagnosis of um, I'm autistic with ADHD. And the person said, oh, you poor thing. Oh, dear. Oh, poor love. <laughs> and I kind of laughed. I said, Do you know, it's the best news I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm not poor thing at all. It isn't poor thing at all. But, um, you know, the, the people I've been talking to on the podcast, um, you know, we're advocates, we want change, we want that we want for there to be change. And, and for me, I, I, I don't think it's going to be the policyholders and the government and those sort of people who are going to do it. It's people like you and I and lots of people who are autistic and are dyslexic and do have Tourette's and are those people, we're going to do it from within. And I quite like the idea of um, us chatting amongst ourselves, not, you know, leaving people out, <laughs> perish the thought, uh, you know, chatting amongst ourselves and sharing our resources and doing these podcasts. And then the other people who don't know about it and want to be educated will see what we're doing and they'll say, oh, I actually want to go over to that group. They look like they're having lots of fun and they're having a really deep, meaningful conversation. I wonder what they're saying. What do you think? Mm. Well, that would be lovely, wouldn't it? <laughs> if that was please, the case. <laughs> please let that happen. Yeah, it would be lovely. Um, I think you're right. I think change is, is going to happen from, from us, isn't it? And from you know, people like us being visible and also having positions in organisations where we can make some change. I hope so. And, and, and I wanted to, I have a question for you. I'd love to ask you. Um, I was on LinkedIn is very good actually for um, neurodivergency and I've met a lot of very interesting people and there are some organizations that are doing really, really good work. Even some of the big guys like um, Google and IBM and Amazon and Microsoft, JP Morgan and, and others, they are putting in place a lot of initiatives to try and, you know, accommodate and but do things properly you know take action to help neurodivergent people but um i'd very much like to ask you um how would you like to see um positive change at home and at school and in the workplace to help all neurodivergent people feel included and valuable members of society i know it's a big question but you know what's your view of that yeah that is a massive question but um i think 
I mean, firstly, I think a lot of the changes that, that could be made would actually benefit everybody, not yeah. just neurodivision people. You know, think, I mean, you, you mentioned school. I mean, things like, you know, smaller class sizes, less focus on exams and more focus on, you know, experiential learning and exploring and deep diving into things. Yes. When I was a kid, I did a week um, at a Waldorf Steiner school. Yeah. Um, oh, I know. Yeah, I know them. Yeah. And my parents were considering moving us there. So we did, we did a week. We didn't, I didn't end up going there in the end, but I, it was only one week and I was 11, but I remember everything that happened that week so clearly because it was just like a revelation. And I just think that would have suited me so well being in a very small class, you know, learning by topic rather than subject. Yes. Oh yes. Yeah. So every, you connect the dots. So you know, they, they take one theme and they do all of their lessons around that, that one theme. And that's amazing. And there's a, there's a fantastic school near us, uh, Moon Hall College, and a, a lot of dyslexic and, um, you know, other neurodivergencies are there. And, and even history, they start right at the beginning and they work through the timeline of history. But I, um, I, I was looking at it in Sweden, the, um, it's a Wolfgang Steiner. I, is it called uh, Waldorf, Waldorf Steiner. Steiner and um, a chap called Harry Thompson who's um, he wrote he's written a book called um, uh, PDA Paradox and uh, he was sent to a nature kids you know in the forest children and things mm. like that you know I my my type of my model of therapy is humanistic but me as a person I always go back to the fact that we are a species we are human beings and that is what it's all about. And we are different in, in, in other ways. We might be different colors, different cultures. You know, um, we, we might have different sexualities or genders. We're different and, and a lot of people are wired differently. We might look different and, you know, we might have physical differences, but at the end of the day, we are all human beings and every single one of us has equality and has, uh, should be given the same thing and i'm not pitchforks at dawn i'm not one of those big activists at all but i do sit on my little fence and look around and, and see what maybe can be snipped and changed because it's not a lot of change is it when you get into like um into the workplace they're actually quite small changes to make really big positive deal well, for people well, i think you know in the workplace I and mean, obviously you know, I, i'm self-employed and i work at home and most of my experience of work has been in schools, which is obviously a very different environment anyway. But it just seems to me that the biggest thing I hear people talk about is things like open plan offices, which are horrendous for most people, not just neurodivision people, because people don't concentrate well when they're surrounded by other people making noise and having conversations and distracted them. So that's, just, you know, so, you know, enabling people to work alone or to work from home not maybe all the time, but when, it, when it's needed. And that's, and I think it's obviously what's happened over the last sort of 18 months has shown that that's possible. Yes. Oh, yes. And not such a very difficult thing to achieve after all, as we've always been told. There is something a bit difficult though, because I had a client who, um, uh, his, his company was a software development company. Mm. And uh, which is, you know, there, there's a lot of uh, geeks. So there is a company called Geeks, actually. Sort of geeky people and neurodivergent people within software development companies. But they're set up really well for neurodivergent people. 
um, and she loved going in. She was amongst people, uh, you know, mm. and uh, the, they all got on really, really well together. And it was such a good job and very, very happy. And then it went into COVID and now they just, they've decided that it's all at home. But for her, she's sociable. You know, a lot of autistic people are, um, need the company of others. They just need... Um, they just need a bit of flexibility with time and maybe lighting and things yeah. like that. That's what I'm saying. That, you know, the, the flexibility side of it, that's just giving people options. So it's not a given that everyone's going to be working in these massive spaces surrounded by people if that's not what they need. I hope, though, that neurotypical people will be happy to want to learn about neurodivergency um, I'm just thinking this off the top of my head now and not feel as though neurodivergent people are getting more and better stuff than they are because they're coming in later or they only work three or four. But that's you know what, what I, I mean. But that, that's but that's kind of what I met when I said at the beginning of this, when I said about um, how these changes would help everybody. Because I think flexibility, if it's, if it's open to everybody, whatever, the, whatever that flexibility might be, like, you know, being able to wear headphones when you're working for example yes you yeah. know if that's an option for everybody then that's just equity i love that i really love that and i'm not really into hierarchies and and it, it would be really good if everyone just felt more equal whoever they are um and i really hope that happens amy it's been so great talking to you today and um, you know, I've really loved, I've loved our conversation and I, I hope perhaps you can come back because we might go into some sort of slightly different topics and, and, and if we do that, you know, I'll, I'll ping you a message and see if you're free, but I love your, I love Square Ped po podcasts and what I will do is um, I'd love to get your link and, um, and I'll put the links in the show notes. Mm -hmm. So if you could please send me any links that you'd like people to find you on, yeah. but, but definitely anyone listening today, please check out um, Amy Richards' Square Peg podcast. They are fantastic and really, really great people that you have on them. Thank, Thank you, you so much, Amy. Thank you very much for having me on. Thank I really you. enjoyed it. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. Thank you very much for listening to the Neurodivergence and Mental Health podcast. Links and resources will be at the end in the show notes. I very much look forward to meeting you again. Thanks for listening. Bye.